This morning we're going to be in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. So if you're visiting with us, there's a Bible in the rack right in front of you. You can grab it, turn all the way to the end. That's going to be either the index or the book of Revelation. Um, And uh, we're going to be looking at a church located in the city of Smyrna. Um, what is modern-day Izmir, Turkey. Um, but uh, as we're looking at the book of, Re- of the Revelation, I want to just grab a couple of things because it's very easy to get lost, to lose focus in this book. And um, the point of this, this part of the book is that we are, we're, we're going through these letters that were written um, by John, but they're from Jesus. So they're written by the Apostle John, but these are from Jesus to the churches that are in Eastern Asia, uh, Western uh, Asia Minor, what, what is today Aegean Turkey, Western Turkey. And you can see a map in your bulletin. shows you where we're talking about. Um, and Ephesus is the first one. It's kind of down on the, the bottom right of the bottom uh, left of the map. And then heading up a little bit is Smyrna. And these two cities, actually three cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, Uh, competed with one another for who would be the chief city uh, in Asia. Now, Ephesus was large. It was probably about half a million people. Um, Smyrna was smaller. We're not sure what the population was during the Roman period because much of the the ancient city is under the modern city. That makes it kind of difficult to figure things out. And if you know anything about archaeology, you figure out ancient populations by the number of toilets and the amount of... uh, uh, garbage that people threw out, so uh, the kind of houses they built and things, so it's hard to do, but um, it's probably a city of, of maybe a quarter of a million people, probably about 200,000 people, somewhere in that neighborhood. It's a large city, and you need to realize that this this area of the Roman Empire was really a population center. If you were to take all of Western, um, what was called Asia, but Western Turkey today, and add up everybody that lived there, probably about 20 to 25% of the population of the Roman Empire lived in that area. Um, so it's a, it's a very large, huge concentration of people. Um, and this, this particular city, Smyrna, had a large Jewish population. Now, when you look at a map of the world and you say, okay, here's Israel, and um, way up here is Turkey, you go, how did... How did Jews get from Israel to Turkey? I mean, uh, this is, this is kind of one of those great big questions because there was a large Jewish population. Well, um, it's kind of a complicated story, so I'll try to abbreviate it. Um, but at one point, a couple hundred years before this period, a group of Celts from modern-day France decided that it would be good to beat up on the Greeks for no other reason than, hey, we're Celts. And that's what they did. So this bunch of this bunch of Celts, um, and not you know not Braveheart Celts in in you know tartans and all that stuff, but they did paint their faces blue, shaved the front of their heads. They were kind of weird. Um, and uh, they just decided one day they were going to just go beat up somebody. And they traveled across Europe to find somebody to beat up. And they showed up in Greece and they beat up the Greeks. They actually burned um, several major religious sites. They laid siege to several cities, and the Greek king bought them off by resettling them in Turkey, um, modern, kind of central Turkey, central Anatolia. Um, and these, the descendants of these people actually have a book in the Bible named after them, believe it or not. Um, the book of Galatians is named after the Gauls, the Celts who lived in Turkey. Um, so um, so this, this 
region, they, they were, you know, it's kind of this enclave of Celtic people, spoke a Celtic language, all this stuff. Well, they kept revolting against the Greek kings. They just didn't like being ruled. So the Greek kings were looking around for somebody willing to beat up on, so keep track of this, Greek kings living in Syria, looking for somebody to beat up on the Celts from France who are beating up on the Greeks in Turkey. So who else to pick but the Jews? That's what they did. The Jews came out and they said, hey, we'll beat them up for you. This, I'm not making this story up. All right, this, is, this is in the book of Josephus. This is in uh, one of the books of Maccabees that deals with this. So a bunch of Jewish mercenaries got together and moved in and beat up the Celts. That's what they did. Um, and, uh, and they figured that was a good deal. Well, then they were left there. They got to settle that land. And they brought a bunch of immigrant Jews up because there was a lot of oppression going on in Israel. And they built a population center there. And then eventually they moved out through all of Turkey. Now, they weren't Hebrew-speaking Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews. Um, they, they spoke Greek. They probably didn't use Hebrew. They didn't go to the temple. Um, they had their own kind of worship thing that was evolving called the synagogue, um, which is what's used in Judaism today. Um, and they were, they were a population center for Jews throughout the whole history of the Roman world. Um, they lived in that region for a long time. Um, and they worked for the Romans. They were, um, they were Roman soldiers. That's what they did. So um, there's this large Jewish population in Turkey, and one of their main centers seems to have been the city of Smyrna. Um, it was one of their, their connections to the western part of the empire. So it gives you kind of an, an idea of what's going on inside this city. Um, we have evidence in Smyrna of Jewish synagogues and Roman temples and all those things, um, but there is one rep religion that has never been represented in what has been uncovered of ancient Smyrna, and that is Christianity. Um, the only records we have of Christians in Smyrna are literary. They come from various different sources. So it's a, an interesting city. So with that said, let's go ahead and look at Re Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8 and see what Jesus has to say to this church of Smyrna in this city of a quarter of a million people with a significant Jewish population to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Literally, the primary, the beginning, and the ending. That's, that's what he means. Um, who died and came to life again. Um, and I'm, I'm going to... Different translations pull this. I'm just going to give you a side note. The way that this is written, it says it's essentially, and you couldn't put this in English without being really verbose, but it's he who died and who has now become life himself. Okay? Um, he, he has become life. It's not he has come to life again, but rather he has become life. The, the actual word, the verb to live is, is in a weird form that he has become this life, his own life. It, it's, it's weird. But anyway, just a side note. Verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, that will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
He who overcomes, or he who is overcoming, will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray. Father, as we once again look at this letter from Your Son, The Word, to His body, The Church, and as we reflect on the ancient realities of this church living in the first century, and our present realities of our church and the church at large, help us to be conformed to the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to know in, in a real um, boots-to-the-ground kind of way what it is that You have to say to us as the church. The warnings You have for us, the encouragements You have for us, the challenges You have for us, help us to learn Help us to walk. Help us have ears to hear and hands to do. And we pray this in the name of our head, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Smyrna is one of the good churches. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there are, there are two good churches, there are two bad churches, and there are three ugly churches in Asia. Um, Ephesus, the first one that we talked about last week, is one of the ugly churches. Um, it's got some good and it's got some bad. Smyrna is a good church. And, and Jesus says to them, he gives them three commendations. He says to them, hey, I know your afflictions. The Greek word phlepsis, which is the tribulations, the, the pressures, the pain that you're through. I know that. And I know your poverty. I know that you don't have all the money in the world. You're, you're, you can't buy the things that you want. You don't have the things you need. But you're rich. He says, you're, you're, and the Greek word for rich means you're full. You have everything that you need, whether you realize it or not. He says, and I know, um, and the Greek word is actually blasphemy. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. Instead, they are the synagogue of Satan. What does he mean there? What is he talking about? Remember, I talked about that large Jewish population in Smyrna. Um, and, and John, who writes this book, he, he, he writes what, what Jesus says here, um, he wrote a gospel. And if you read the gospel of John, you will find um, that the, the Jews, the, 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 the Jewish people, really the, the Jewish leaders is really what he's talking about, um, as they interact with Jesus, there, there is this progressive process that starts with them being... Um, curious. They're curious about Jesus. They're interested in what he has to say and what he's doing. And, and they have some questions, but they're not hostile to him. Um, but over time, and John is very, very careful to use the word Jew um, as he describes this, over time, a split happens. Um, as people have to decide, um, are we going to follow Jesus and the fulfillment of Scripture, of our Bible, of the, the Hebrew Scripture, or are we going to oppose Jesus and follow our traditions and what makes for good living, for lack of a better term, that keeps the peace, that uh, keeps everything under control, nobody gets mad at us. And, and over the course of the book of John, you will, the Gospel of John, as you read it, you will see a split between those two people those two groups of people, those two groups of Jews. One of them becomes the church. One of them becomes the followers of Christ. 
they start following Jesus, they, they observe what He says, they listen to Him, they, they, they take His teachings, even though they're difficult. And in fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus tells a very, very difficult, He gives a very difficult lesson to His church. I'll let you read it when you have a time, um, to His people. He gives a very difficult lesson to His followers and challenges them. And at the end of the chapter, there's a group of His disciples who say, we don't understand this, tell us more, explain this to us more. And then there's another group, the Bible says, that they stopped following Jesus. They just halted right there. A larger group just said, that's it, we're done. We, we can't, we're not going to follow this guy. And from that point on, in the Gospel of John, that group that broke off gets progressively more violent toward Jesus. They start to try to stone him. They start to try to arrest him. They oppose him in a, in a much more aggressive way until you get to a point in John chapter 11. John 11, right, Lee? That's where we left off, John 11? Yeah, all right, so Lee and I are studying the book of John together. John chapter 11, um, they actually have this conference where they say, what do we do about this Jesus guy? And the high priest says, you know what, it's better that we kill him than we deal with the problems of what he's doing. You know, And you see how these people move from being curious to being willing to kill a guy for for what? For healing the blind, raising the dead. I mean, what a terrible person, you know? And there's this split that starts to take place. And it aggravates and aggravates and aggravates. And in Asia Minor, um, in Asia, modern-day Turkey, um, and you can read in this in the book of Galatians, is a great place to look for it, but in Asia, there was a very intentional movement by the Jews that lived in that area to oppose, stop, destroy, or convert Christianity. It was essentially a jihad against the Christians in Asia, conducted by these people. Now, when we think of it, we don't, we don't think of, uh, you know, I mean, no one ever sits around and goes, oh, yeah, the Jews, they, they fight holy wars, because they don't. But they were so opposed to this thing that was the church, that was Christianity, that was this group of people that were following Jesus, that they said, first of all, they said to the Christians, well, you can follow Jesus if you want, as long as you follow all the rules of the Torah, as long as you follow all of the rules that we give you that make you a Jew, you can follow Jesus if you want to. That's okay. You could do that. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians says, absolutely not. In fact, he says at one point, he says, who has bewitched you that you would believe a lie? He says, who would take you back into bondage, put you back under a schoolmaster, under a, under a, 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 a punishing um, teacher? He says, that's not, that's not what works. And what has, seems to have happened over the years is that this particular group had militarized against the church, that they were actively opposing the church in Asia. They were already doing it in Ephesus. You can read about it in the book of Acts. They were already doing it in Galatia. You can read about it in the book of Galatians. Um, they, they, to a certain extent, were doing it in Greece. They were certainly doing it in Syria and Lebanon. They were, they were actively opposing the church. Well, when you combine that kind of active opposition to the Christianity with a, the descendants of a military unit of mercenaries that had been sent to put down rebellion you get fireworks. And in Asia, the Jews were on a rampage to stop the Christians. They were willing to do anything to stop them. In fact, we'll find out in a, in a few minutes just what they were willing to do.
But I want to set that aside. But I do want to make this point, and I want to make sure that everybody understands when they read this, that what John, what Jesus is talking about is not that Christianity is opposed to Jews, that there's a hatred for Jews. Not all Jews are the synagogue of Satan. That's not what he's saying here. You say, why do you say that? Because believe it or not, there are people who believe that. If you're a Jew, you're a Satan worshiper. That is not true. But these, this particular group who called themselves Jews, but were not. Why? Why were they not Jews? Because they're violating Scripture to do this. They're, they're on some kind of crusade, some kind of jihad to destroy a movement that's whole purpose is to see the fulfillment of Scripture. So he calls them the synagogue of Satan. He will revive that term, Satan, over and over again in, in the book of the Revelation. But look at what he says in verse 10. So we see, we see all this, all right, this military thing. They, they're, they're suffering already the pressure. They're already poor. They're already being attacked and blasphemed by the synagogue of Satan. And what does he say in verse 10? He says, do not fear what is about to happen. Not what is happening, but what is about to happen. What is coming? You haven't really faced the test yet, Smyrna. You haven't really seen opposition, but it is coming. And when it comes, it is going to be terrible. He says, it is coming. Do not fear the things you are about to suffer. Now what's interesting about this, and I'll, just a side note, this is the only place where John uses the word suffer. These things that, you are about, that are about to happen will be a suffering that will be unique to you. And remember what I said, what religious tradition is not represented in the archaeological record of Smyrna? Christianity. Um, we don't know exactly what happened. But something happened in Smyrna sometime after the year 150, somewhere between 150 and 300, where Christianity was essentially stamped out, wiped out of the city of Smyrna. Something was coming. I tell you in verse 10, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And whether this is um, devil, devil, as in capital D, um, or it's, it's also a legal term for uh, the prosecution, all right? the, the prosecuting attorney. This, is, this would be um, diabolos in Greek is um, district attorney. So Greg, every time you face the district attorney, just remember diabolos. Um, <laughs> um, not the defense attorney, you know. Um, but uh, this, is, this was the, the legal term for this. So whether he's saying that Satan himself is going to do this or just the political forces of the city were going to do it, regardless who was doing it, there was going to be a time of suffering. Some of you are going to be put in prison, he says. And he says, some of you will suffer persecution. Some of you are going to be um, persecuted. And, and um, persecution is the, is the idea of uh, violence and pain um, in opposition. All right. So if somebody calls you a name, that's not persecution. Okay. Um, if somebody tells you that you can't pray in a public place, that's not persecution. It's unconstitutional, but it's not persecution. Persecution is violence. It is the use of pain and the threat of death to prevent you from doing what you're doing. That's what persecution is. 
In America, we don't know what persecution is. In the Sudan, they know what persecution is. In India, they know what persecution is. In America, we don't really do it. We, we, we Americans, we deal with people opposing us, but we don't deal with persecution. But I assure you, um, the church today, in 2013, not our church, but the church, Big C, knows what persecution is. They live through it. If you want to read some more about it, the Missions Committee's got great books. You can read about that. You can grab a copy of them. I'll refer you to Ray Brown, Brenda Brown, Lucy Strawbridge. They can get you connected with some, some information that will blow your mind about what's happening in Christianity right now, today. But he says to them, you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now you and I say that. We go, well, uh, ten days, that's not, that's not bad. You know, I mean, ten days, it's hard, but I mean, it takes that long for a package to get from California to, the, to New York. I mean, that's not a big deal. So what is he talking about when he says ten days? Um, if, if, you're, if you're familiar with the scriptures, I want, to take you, I want you to take your Bibles to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, it's one of the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's got to be a song, and I am the very model of a major prophet in the Bible. Oh, a little Rogers and, no, that's not Rogers and Hammerstein, but anyway. Um, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel is a, a Jewish boy. He's a member of the royal family, the, the servants of the Lord, uh, servants of the king. We're not sure exactly um, who he was or, or what was going on, but anyway, he was taken captive um, in, in, by the Babylonian armies, the Chaldean army, 603 B.C., um, and uh, he was taken to Babylon, and basically what the Babylonians would do, and this was their stroke of genius, what they would do is they would take the cream of the crop, the smartest of your kids, um, and they would take them and they would train them to be Babylonian. They would teach them to speak the language, they would teach them to worship the gods and all of this stuff, and that would ensure the, that your people would become Babylonian. Um, it was, uh, it's a practice that's been copied many, many times by many conquering armies. But anyway, um, so they're brought, to, they're brought to Babylon and they're told, um, this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to eat, these are the gods you're going to worship, these are the names we're going to call you by. And Daniel takes three of his buddies and he goes to the, the head of this whole program. He says, we can't do this, we can't eat the meat, we can't serve the gods, we can't do this. And the guy says, well, what do you want me to do, Daniel? If you don't do it, the, guy, the king's going to kill me. He says, well, don't tell the king. He says, but um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a, look at, um, take a look at verse 12. Daniel says this. He says, um, Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servant in accordance with what you see. So he, the steward, agreed to this and tested them for ten days, and at the end of the ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now, um, what happens in the Revelation is that Jesus borrows this idea of the ten days from Daniel to represent a time period of test, a trial period, a time where you will live in deprivation and struggle and pain and hunger and difficulty. Right? He borrows this idea. It is, it is not meant to be a literal ten days. It is meant to be a season of time in which Smyrna will go through this test and this trial. 
And here's the deal. Most of the time, when, when God, when we see in the Bible that God says, you're going to go through this test, you're going to go through this trial, we tend to think that God wants to put us through this test, put us through this trial, put us through this time of difficulty, so that God can somehow um, teach me something, or, or you know, make me something, or, or, well, God must be doing this for a reason. But with Daniel's situation, it's not a matter of what, what God wants to make them, they already are faithful to him. They go through the test and they go through the trial and they go through the persecution and they go through the deprivation to show an unbelieving world the reality of their God. So when Jesus says to the church of Smyrna, you are about to go through a trial, you are about to endure the worst season of your life, the purpose of this trial is not so you come out the end and get to be a megachurch. The purpose of this trial is not so that you will be fantastic. The purpose of this trial is not so you will learn all the skills you need necessary for the great season of growth that will follow. But rather, the purpose of this trial is that you, the church of Smyrna, will die in the process of this trial time. You will be beaten to death. You will be stoned. You will be murdered. You will be fed to lions, you will be mistreated so that an unbelieving world will see your God. Well, isn't that encouraging? This is the encouragement that Jesus gives to a church that has been faithful. They have been good. They're a good church. And he goes, you know what's going to happen to you? Hell is going to break loose on earth. And the point of it, the reason for it, the process of it, the whole, the whole power behind it is so that this world will see me in you. Now what kind of faith does it take to go into that? To go into that. And as I studied this passage, there was one verse that popped up in my well, two verses that came to mind constantly as I was reading it. One of them is in the book of Job. Job chapter 13 and verse 15, Job responds to people trying to explain to him why he is going through suffering and why he is going through difficulty and why he is going through pain. And they have all of these explanations they want to give him. And Job just says, he looks at his friends who are trying to explain everything to him and he says, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. He says, it doesn't matter whether I get blessing. It doesn't matter if I can't see the reality of God. It doesn't matter if, if things fall apart around me. I will serve Him. Where does that come from? Though He slay me, He says. He says, though God kills me, though, though I have to be offered as a sacrifice. The Apostle Paul says, I am about to be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. He's, he knew his death was coming. Um, he writes to, to uh, I think it's Timothy that he writes that. He says, this is coming. I know that it's coming. And I'm okay with it. And you go, what? And here's the deal. These men had a faith so strong that though God take everything away, they would still believe because they could do nothing else. Martin Luther stood behind the, before um, the, the rulers of his world, secular and religious alike, and they told him to reject his view of the Scripture, that the Bible was the absolute Word of God, 
and that the traditions of men had no power over that, that word. And he said to them a word that, has, that changed the world. He said, here I stand. I can do no other. There is nothing in me that will allow me to accept anything other than a faith in the Word of God. He said, I simply cannot be anything else. And the reality is, is often that American Christianity is never tested and tried and we don't know whether there is something else. We don't know whether we would break under the strain. We don't know whether we could take all of the pain and pressure that God was going to bring down on Smyrna. I mean, think about it. If the secular forces of your world and the religious forces of your world said, if you don't, don't back down, we will completely eradicate the memory of your existence. Your grandchildren will not know you ever lived. There will be nothing about you left in the world. How eager would we be to keep moving forward? And he says this to the church of Smyrna. He says, the time of testing is coming. It is about a wor the world seeing faith that is stronger than fear. Psalm 71 and verse 7, he says, uh, the psalmist says, I am made a portent, I am made a sign, I am made a symbol for many that they might see. My God is my refuge. And then he throws something in there. Again, the end of verse 10, he says, Be faithful, even to death. Be faithful, even to death. And I will give you the crown of life. The Stephanos. The, um, you know when we see the Romans, they've got that little Christmas wreath around their head? That's the Stephanos. And the point of that, that crown was the victor of a race was given that crown. And he says, to, he says to them, here's the deal. You must be faithful to death because you've got death and life backwards. You know, don't we think of life, isn't our world and our culture defined by how we can stay alive as long as we possibly can? Isn't that the way we think? How can I stay young as long as I possibly can. How can I, how can I not give a hint as to um, how old I am or, um, you know, I mean, plastic surgery is a multi-billion dollar industry to, to make both men and women. It's not that either one of them is more vain than the other. Look younger than they really are. And, and don't we look at movie stars and Hollywood people and think, oh, they've aged so well. You know, oh, is it, oh, it's amazing. And it's almost like we continue to stave off death. We do anything we can to stave off death, don't we? Isn't that why we take bodies of our dead? I'm going to upset people. We take the bodies of our dead and we pump them full of chemicals so they still look alive, so we can put them in a box and bury them in the ground? Isn't that why we do that? Because we don't want to embrace the fact that everybody dies. There have only ever been three human beings who didn't die. There was Enoch, there was Elijah, and there was Jesus. And the only reason they didn't die is they went to be with the Lord. 
They went directly. They didn't pass through. Every other one of us will die. Isn't that a harsh thing to say in church? But it's true. And Jesus says to the, the, the Smyrnans, you're going to die anyway. So I will give you the crown of life. He said, I will give you the victor's crown. That you will die. You're going to be destroyed. All of this will disappear. All of this will deteriorate. All of this will fall apart. All of this will be pressed and this will be crushed. And yet, I am the one who was dead and now I am life. And we get it backwards. We try to pretend like death won't happen. And Jesus says to the the church at Smyrna, just get ready for the reality of life, but believe, I will give you the crown of life. And you will never taste of the second death. What's he talking about? Well, you've got to read the end of Revelation for that. I'll leave that to you. I can't tell you everything. You know what? Um, we as the American church, we get so comfortable, we get so, so relaxed and so easy, and we think we're going to live forever. We don't realize that the time and the experience of the freedom of religion that America has is a parenthesis in a history of the world that hates Christianity. Always has, always will. We, we don't realize that the joy and the pleasure and the ease that we go through life, the simple tribulations that we endure in life, are nothing. And we don't get challenged and pressed. And we think that this is the way that life should be. And you have to wonder if when the pressure comes, and I assure you, it will come, how will we endure? But then we as people, and I want to close with a story, we, we as people, how does our faith hold up in our personal tribulations? One of the last mentions of Christians in Smyrna occurs um, in a book written by a, a bishop named Eusebius. Um, written around, it's written around 350 uh, AD. But it tells the story of the, the bishop of the, well, in those days, they just called preachers episcopos, which is, which is the word we get bishop from. The pastor of the church in Smyrna, his name was Polycarp. Um, and Polycarp, as a child, had probably heard the Apostle John speak personally. He had actually been there um, and heard him speak. Polycarp is an old man in 153 AD. Um, there was a massive persecution of the Christians in the city of Smyrna. And the Christians begged him, an old man, um, to go and hide. They took him out of the city. They took him to a farm. um, And then after a while, the soldiers started coming. They were coming for that farm, so they took him and they moved him somewhere else. And finally, I mean, he's an old man. I mean, he's in his 80s. He just goes, I'm tired of running. I don't want to run. They had to drag him out of the city because he wanted to stay. He was trying to take care of the people, the poor and the the needy and all this stuff. 
He finally says, I don't want to run. Soldiers come to the door. He invites them to dinner. All right? Just a great guy. He's like, hi, how are you? You're going to execute me? Okay, great. Um, we're just sitting down for dinner, if you wouldn't mind. Um, why don't you guys sit and eat? And they, they eat together. Um, he goes and he prays, um, prays for the emperor, prays for the, 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 the region, prays for the, the people, um, the, the guys who are there, you know, this whole, whole thing. And he says, all right, I'm ready. And Polycarp was such a gentle, kind man that when he gets into the, the, uh, the, the amphitheater, the, um, the hippodrome where they're going to try him, because um, they did their trials in the arena so that they could then throw people to the animals and things like that. He gets there late in the day and the games are over and the whole crowd's been waiting for Polycarp to come. And um, he finally gets there and he stands in front of the governor um, and, the, and the governor's sitting there and he kind of takes him aside. And, and the governor says to him, he says, he says, look, he says, all you have to do, it doesn't matter if you mean it, you're a gentle, sweet guy, just say, um, just swear allegiance to the emperor as, as the divine emperor um, and swear off this atheism because they considered Christianity atheism because they only believed in one God. All right? So they didn't believe in all the other gods, so it was atheism. Um, he said, just swear it off. It doesn't matter whether you mean it or not. Just swear it off and you'll be fine. And Polycarp says, I can't. I can't. And he says to him, look, I, I know, I understand your deep conviction, your faith, your whole deal. You're a great guy. You take care of the poor. You've been feeding the widows. You know, you've never done anything wrong. Just go ahead. Tell them that you won't do it. He does it three times. Now, whether Eusebius is borrowing from um, the Bible or not, we don't know. But he does it three times. And finally, Polycarp says to him, I can't. I won't. The governor then turns to his messenger. He sends his messengers out. They run around the amphitheater three times shouting, Polycarp refuses to deny. Polycarp professes to be a Christian. And the crowd rises up and starts screaming, Polycarp, the father of the Christians. Polycarp, the father of idolatry. Polycarp, the father of refusal to, deny, to, to worship the emperor. And they start calling for his blood. They want to feed him to the lions. All right? They're like, feed him to the beasts. And the head of the, the games goes, and this is one of those great moments in, in history. The head of the game steps up to the governor and he goes, there is no earthly way I'm taking those animals back out of those cages. This is not going to happen. It's too much work. That's, I mean, he literally says that to him. So then, now the governor's stuck. And he goes, all right, well, what are we going to do? He says, and, and Polycarp says, well, he says, if you're going to kill me, he says, um, why don't you burn me like a sacrifice to God? Whoa. Brass, man. And he just, he says, why don't you just do this? The governor says, you sure? He says, yeah, just go ahead and do it. He says, um, and uh, so the governor says, we're going to burn him. And this is one of the most heartbreaking moments, I think, in this, this, this story. When he announces that, the Jews of the city of Smyrna run to their homes and break up their furniture so there'll be enough firewood to burn Polycarp. A gentle old man who never did anything to them, who cared for the poor, provided for the widows. What had he done? He was a Christian. That was all that mattered. And I think... As the fire started to burn, I think that Polycarp remembered this. He actually makes a statement, whether Eusebius records it exact or not. 
Um, but um, he makes a statement about it that, that he's ready. Because he serves his Lord and he can do nothing else. And the fire consumes Polycarp. And Christianity ceases to exist in Smyrna within a hundred years. And the question for you on a personal level, am I really truly willing to do what God calls me to do, no matter what the pressures are? How often do we as believers and I include myself in that we, how often do we as followers of Christ allow a difference of opinion to force us to tweak the way we would do things so that we don't offend? So we don't hurt feelings? So that we don't upset the delicate balance? Guys, we are called to follow Christ no matter what. If Christ, and, and Nicole and I were talking about this, when Nicole was um, having Ariel, um, and she had been awake for two days, and she was on the, the, um, the operating table, and they were doing the cesarean section, and, and the, the um, anesthetics were wearing off, and there was all kinds of craziness going on, and there were complications with Ariel, and she didn't want to come out, and um, literally she crawled up underneath Nicole's ribcage, and um, there were all kinds of things going on. And when they took her out, um, we couldn't see her. Uh, she didn't cry. Uh, there, were, there were all kinds of things. And she was perfectly healthy, but she, once she started crying, she hasn't stopped talking in the last eight and a half years. But, um, you know, there were all these things going on. And I remember distinctly, we were talking about this this week, um, I remember distinctly sitting in that operating, ta- in that operating room with my hands crossed, with the anesthesiologist looking at me, shaking his head, because there was nothing more he could do. And I remember saying to myself in prayer, God, if you took her, you took my child, I would still follow you. I have no idea why I said that. Except that I think for me, I needed to know just how deep my faith would run. Was I willing to go that far? Would I serve the Lord when nothing else mattered? When nothing else works? Would I be who God called me to be and do what God called me to do when no one else would follow? When no one else would hear? When all the world would align against me? Would I? I still don't know the answer to that question. I'll be honest with you, I still don't know the answer to that question. Because I've never been hauled before an amphitheater for feeding the poor and told I was going to be killed and had people breaking up their furniture to burn me and be confronted with, will I still believe? Would I go to that end? Now most pastors at this point would give you some kind of guilt trip. I'm not going to. I'm going to tell you is this. When you deeply reflect on your, your path with Christ... How far in your being does it go? If God took away everything, would you still follow Him? If He took away everything, would you still follow Him? 
Or is He just convenient? Does He just give you the things you want? Do you rely upon Him to give you something to take care of you? But if there was nothing, would you still follow Him? Heavenly Father, I don't know the answer to that question about myself. I genuinely don't. Sometimes I delude myself into believing that I would follow You into the gates of hell. I just don't know. But I do know that You did something in my life. You changed me in a way that I cannot understand. And I believe right now that I believe with every fiber of my being. Father, help us to have the strength of not just religion and not just conviction, but the presence of Jesus Christ in our moments, in our seconds, in our hearts, in our minds that will carry us when we cannot be carried, carry ourselves. We ask this in the name of our precious and holy Savior, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead that we might walk in newness of life. Amen.